This is your host, Caitlin Cook, and welcome back to another episode of the Dead Kate Bounce Experience. This week's guest is George Harrop, co-founder of Step Finance. George has been in the crypto world for 12 years, having been an early Bitcoin miner in 2011 to co-founding the first crypto remittance company in 2014, later going on to co-found Step Finance in early 2021 with the goal of onboarding the next billion people into crypto. He's passionate about sovereign money systems and the benefits cryptocurrencies can bring to the world and is currently leading the Step Finance team towards highlighting better on-chain data in the Solana ecosystem. Working around the world from Turkey to Hong Kong and beyond, not only does George have a long tenure in the crypto space, he also has a strong understanding of the various real-world use cases for crypto and decentralized finance. Many of my listeners are within the United States. It's important to step back every so often and remind ourselves of the many ways in which government, policy, and volatile native currencies can impact countries, businesses, and individuals, as well as the many ways in which crypto and blockchain technology have already been and are continuing to be adopted around the world. We cover all of that and more in this episode. With that, please enjoy my conversation with George. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency. George, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, one of our first guests of uh, season two for 2023. So really excited to kick this off. Lots to get into. We talked about this offline, but always want to start out with your crypto story. You've been in crypto for a lot longer than most of the people that I've been able to have on this podcast and most people that I've met. So lots to dig into there. But how did you find crypto to begin with? What's the origin story? Yeah, look, there's probably many stories wrapped within stories, I dare say. But um <laughs> Look, I, I, I've been in crypto since 2011, I guess you could say, uh, pretty early. So probably the first couple hundred people that ever heard about crypto, I guess. Back then, it was a, it was just a, a website for nerds on the internet. So there was literally one website called Bitcoin Talk. It was a forum and, uh, and people were posting on there and Satoshi was on there. And, uh, you know, they were talking about this digital currency. And, and at the time, like I was studying electronics engineering. I was a student at the time. And uh, I really sort of, that's how I taught myself firstly about finance was actually through Bitcoin and, and through that journey. But uh, I, what piqued my interest was I was, I was building computers and that sort of thing in, in my room in my spare time. And then I saw, hey, you can like do this thing called mining and then you can make some money on your computer like while it sits there. So I was like, okay, I'm a techie kind of guy. So I did that. So I used to make like, uh, like computers that would just churn and, and mine Bitcoin and they're, they're pretty much heaters, right? So they're heaters which make you money. Imagine if everyone had a heater in their house which made the money. That's a pretty good idea, right? So, I wish. <laughs> um, yeah. so, uh, so look, I, I got started there. And um, yeah, look, I, I was one of the first, um, I, I get after you could mine Bitcoin on a laptop, uh, you could do it on a MacBook or something. And then things progressed and got harder and harder. So I was in the first batches of FPGAs and ASIC miners and all this kind of stuff. I was 1% of the network at one stage. But uh, really, that's when it started to get a bit more institutionalized. You had guys in China with $10 million setting up a factory that all it did was Bitcoin mining. And, and that was my, my exit queue. So uh, I got out of that like 2013, something along those lines, having made some money, lost some money, uh, done a lot of crazy stuff uh, just uh, you know on the forums at the time. There was only one exchange in the world. Uh, people might be familiar with the word MTGOX. So a random exchange in Japan that would started with a magic the gathering trading card game that was like how they started uh, i used to do a loop when i was in australia as a as a student where i could wire money to mt gox i could buy bitcoin there in usd and then i could sell the bitcoin back in australia for plus 2.2 percent so i would do that and i could get the wire transfer sent at least sometimes like two to three times a week so i could close that loop like two or three times uh, and then I keep recycling and, and that sort of thing. As soon as I get the AUD back in my account, I have to FX it as cheap as possible back to USD and then wire again to MTGOX. So I used to make some spare money as uh, as a student doing that. So that was cool. 
Um, but yeah, at 2014, I co-founded, went, got on a plane, went to Hong Kong. Hong Kong was the best place in the world for crypto. Uh, started a company with my friend who uh, we did Bitcoin remittances. That was six years of my life doing that. So usual sort of startup journey, you know, raising money and eating ramen and whatever it might be that you see, but uh, did that. Um, and then as time came to an end there uh, at that startup, got into DeFi and uh, that's sort of where sort of catapulted me, I guess, into my current role, uh, co-founding Step Finance. But uh, in 2020, got into DeFi, started in a Solana hackathon. And uh, and then, yeah, here we are today uh, with uh, Step Finance, which is a data analytics platform uh, built on the Solana blockchain. But I've seen a lot of stuff, been through a lot of cycles, made money, lost money like five, six times, can't remember. And yeah, so yeah, <laughs> lots of different stories there. <laughs> And we can get into all of them, which is perfect. We have time for this. So um, before we talk about Step, I know you mentioned, again, have been in this space for a long time, have seen a lot of things, have lost a lot of money, made a lot of money too, as it goes. Um, but how have you seen, I mean, you were in the early days when Satoshi was still around, right? How is the thesis of crypto from that time and when it started, how has that evolved since then in the 12 years since? Yeah, so back then, the people that got into Bitcoin, certainly in the early days, got into it for ideological reasons. And the interesting thing is all of those people are pretty much still in Bitcoin today for exactly the same reason. Essentially, we need private money for the world. That's what we need. We need a, a level playing field, a single monetary unit that can't be corrupted and isn't just decided on by a bunch of people that sit around a table once a quarter. Uh, that nobody knows or votes for or anything like that. And essentially the allure of, of Bitcoin back then was, hey, we have this thing, we have this concept called decentralization, first and foremost. Secondly, a lot of the, the gold and silver bugs, you know, those kind of people, libertarian mindset, they certainly got into it, really liked the idea. And uh, and yeah, the, the sound money thesis uh, was, was another thing, like you need the seven properties of money. I, I forget all of the seven. It's like you need to be fungible. You need to uh, you know, have a limited supply and, and all of this kind of stuff. So a lot of those reasons, I think, is what drove a lot of people initially. And, and that was the core mindset of everyone. Uh, everyone had that and everyone was you know, really excited about it. It wasn't about making money. It wasn't about trading it on exchanges. It wasn't about what kind of futures product can I make for this thing? And what kind of options thing can I wrap? Nobody cared about any of that. Um, it was also very much about transactional, like paying for stuff as well. The whole concept of, oh, you can buy a coffee in Bitcoin. Isn't that crazy? And that really caught on. And, and that's kind of died off in, in Bitcoin land, I think in, well, certainly these days. But it used to be much bigger. And, and now I think it's more about being a store of value and being, you know, an analog to, to gold and, uh, yeah, being sort of that, that unit that, um, that can be that store of value. But, but back then it was very much transactional in nature. So it was how can I pay my rent? How can I? I think one of the big companies that first got into it was like Dish in the US and there's like some satellite TV or something. And everyone was like, oh, crazy. Like you can pay your, your bills in it. This is the future, man. Um, so, and then, but the problem that a lot of people ran into is of course the fiat problems. So you had these gate gateways and gatekeepers. So you had people like BitPay, they raised a lot of money, got started. Essentially you could pay your bill in US dollar denominator, but you can pay in Bitcoin. So anyway, there was a lot of those sort of businesses that, um, that, that arose. It was more on the transactional side and money transfers and so on, but really it comes back to the philosophy and and we need private money for the world. And, and that's something that I still believe to this day. And, and that's why I care about crypto is I want everyone to have the same access to the financial system, whether I'm in Zimbabwe or Turkey or New York or wherever I might be. I think it's uh, it's just a much better system in, in general. Like at, in, in my remittance days, like there's 2000 money transfer systems in the world. If you count banking as one, so 2,000 of them. So all of these different payment methods and all of these different currencies, there's about 180 currencies, they all suck. Like they're all terrible. Um, it's not as if like the, the Myanmar chat is going to get better anytime soon. It's not. Uh, or the Kwacha uh, or the Tajik Samoni. Like these are national currencies, which pretty much billions of people have to use and, and transact with, but they're, they're fundamentally broken in, in many different ways. So I think like having a a standard unit that can be used throughout the world that's not political in any way 
uh, is very important. So, so that's, I guess, the, the brief overview about sort of the philosophies. But yeah, back then, like everyone was talking about that. That was the thing. That's, that's why you got into crypto. Um, there wasn't really anything else. There wasn't really any other websites either. And look at how far we've come, right? I mean, the craziest things are being built now that no one, if you, if you had told someone 10 years ago what was being built today, they probably wouldn't believe you. And first of all, would have, and second of all, would have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so it's got to be a crazy ride looking back at that from where you started versus now. Yeah. But, is, it, is it a good thing or a bad thing? That's a question that I think of. Because, I think it's the natural progression, right? I mean, it's yeah, just like it, the maturation it, of the space. Yeah. I don't know. Like I often think about this, like, if, if we lose the way about why we're doing what we're doing, does it matter that we're doing it? That's one thing. So it's kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we've got all these crazy different things and it's all new stuff. But, yeah, but why? Why are we doing it? It's because private money for the world matters. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I think yeah, there's, there's definitely arguments you can have on both sides. And people have them every single day on Twitter and I get to see it um, (laughs) way too often. But you led me um, to exactly what I wanted to talk about first, which is around use cases and living in the States myself and a lot of the people listening being in the States. Like you said, I mean, it's very clear that the narrative has changed around, you know, why crypto is good for the world and why we should be building decentralized systems and whatnot. You made it very clear on, you know, the original like ethos of why Bitcoin was created. If anyone ever wants to check that, read the Satoshi white paper. Um, it's very, very clear on, you know, what the purpose for that was. And, you know, you can see today and how that's evolved um, and maybe strayed. But you are in Turkey and you've worked in Hong Kong. You've been all over the place, right? So very good perspective in terms of emerging markets and the use cases there, because I think it's very hard to get out of your bubble when you're living in a country that has a somewhat stable currency and don't have to think about some of the things that people around the world do. And just because it doesn't impact you does not make the use case any less valuable or important. So talk to me a little bit about um, what you see in emerging markets and the use case for crypto there as it started out, like you talked about and where we are today with that. Yeah. Well, stability is an interesting thing because it's always stable relative to what? Like when right. people say like the currency is is stable, but it's like, oh, well, you know, the, the Venezuelan Bolivar is stable to the Venezuelan Bolivar, you know, <laughs> as one Bitcoin's one Bitcoin, right. as Bitcoin people will say, right? Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I think it's, that's one perspective to have is that like, are we aiming for stability and, and is stability ever possible? Because if you, if you really, so if you measure one thing, if you measure A against B, like A is never going to be B and B is never going to be A. They're never going to be the same thing. They're always going to be different. So there always is like inherent instability in, in a lot of these different things. But in the case of emerging markets, I think that's to, to a bit more of an extreme. And, and that's why sort of uh, a lot of people transact in a local fiat currency that depreciates against, say, the US dollar, 70%, 80%, I think 86% is, is Turkey's in official inflation rate this year. I think it's more like 200% really. Uh, you've got Argentina, which is in the same league and, and a bunch of other places. But look, a lot of these uh, countries, let's say, I think it's Turkey's about 30 to 40% of the population either has a, a crypto wallet or uses it uh, wow. in, in the last 30 to 60 days. I, I saw a chart recently. Nigeria is another one. I had a friend who was um, in Nigeria and he needed his laptop fixed, didn't have any local Naira. Uh, the the local currency there. So he went to the like the laptop shop and he's like, can you fix it? And then they were like, sure, you can pay us in Tether, USDT. So that was, that's super cool. But it's just stuff like that. Like you can walk down the road anywhere in Istanbul, you're probably going to run into an OTC shop somewhere. It's a shop where you can exchange cash for crypto. Um, I bought my house in USDC. I furnished it in stable coins as well, USDT. So these are like, when people ask in, you see this a lot in crypto as well. They're like, oh, but what are the use cases for crypto? Or, oh, when will it catch on? It's it's like, no, no, it's already caught on. Maybe not particularly in, in your neighborhood, but, you know, for many people around the world, there's 7 billion of us. There are countries with populations of hundreds of millions where 30 to 40 to 50% of the population use crypto. And, uh, you know, people, people have wallets and stuff and they use all these different platforms. So that's what, that's what I'm pretty excited about. And, uh, yeah, you know, Turkey is a good example of that, but all, all around the world, like I remember when we first started the crypto remittances out of Hong Kong, a big money transfer corridor from Hong Kong is the Philippines. The Philippines 
probably like six, seven years ago, it had about 5 million users of a lot of the local crypto apps there. Um, and all of those apps were connected to cash out locations of which there's about five different brands there and they all have like 30,000 stores each. So basically every street corner in the Philippines, you can get money in and out. So you could cash out your crypto at any of these places uh, if you wanted to or cash in if you wanted to as well. And they were connected to bill payments as well. So you could pay your phone bill. That was like six, seven years ago. So I don't know what it is now. I know Indonesia was in a similar kind of neighborhood, about 5 million uh, for just like one of the exchanges there. And that was probably like 2015, 2016, something like that. So yeah, you know, and and really like, well, the question is why? A, a lot of the reasons are, you know, as I said before, there's a lot of currencies in the world. A lot of them suck. Um, so they're not good for various reasons. Maybe you can't do local bank transfers. That's a good example in in Africa, the, the West African franc. It's a currency union of, I forget how many countries, it's like 10 or something, right? Um, but some of those countries, even though they share the same currency, you literally can't do a transfer between them. So if you're sending from like Senegal to like Cote d'Ivoire or something like that, uh, you, you just can't, like the banks are not connected together. So you can either sit there and go, oh, gee, I, I really hope that like the banks are going to work together. Okay, cool. Like you could have done that for the last hundred years, but it's not happening. So what are you going to do? So people are like, cool, well, I'm just going to use crypto then because that just makes more sense. It literally works now. I can download a wallet for free and then I can just trade with whoever I want. Who cares? Um, you know, another example, I in my, my previous uh, startup as well, uh, got uh, sponsored to go to Tajikistan uh, with the UN as part of one of their different uh you know programs that they have for money transfers and blah 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 but it was it was really interesting so uh two banks in that country collapsed in the last 10 years when i was there and everyone lost their money in the banks and how they transferred money was they had bags of cash and they give it to taxi drivers and the taxi drivers would like drive to different towns and like deliver it and stuff so that was that was the payment method to beat like can you be better than bags of cash given to taxi drivers that's that's what you had to be so, yeah, look, I, I think it kind of frames how people might consider crypto and, and the use cases of crypto when you sort of consider the, the wider world and, and different currencies. But, I, yeah, I definitely think that there's still so many use cases that haven't been explored, but there's also so many use cases that are already, like, huge. So, yeah, just got to get more awareness of that. Yeah, I'm so much more awareness of that because even, I mean, I'm guilty of this as well, right? Everyone looks at the price action of it and they look at it as an investment vehicle. And maybe that is one use case for it. But like you said, there are so many and there are billions of people around the world and everyone should have the right to, you know, the same access and accessing the same systems and governments not controlling or limiting the way that people can use their finances or the ways that, or like the value of the currency that they're interacting with around the world. Like there are just very baseline things that so many of us are blessed to not have to worry about, but most aren't, right? So I think it's really important to like shine the light on that as much as possible because people forget very, very quickly when it doesn't really like uh, when it doesn't impact them, I guess I'd say. Yeah. And, and even in developed countries as well, right? Like I would say the Nigerian banking system is probably better than the US banking system. Like US still has ACH transfers and, and paper checks and, and stupid mm -hmm. things like this. In Nigeria, you can do a lookup of someone's bank account before you send them and you can do like real-time payments. You can do that for like the last, I don't know, six, seven years or something like that. So yeah, like it, there, there are a lot of like developed national currency systems out there. So it's not just about like the tech, because that could be another argument that people have. It's like, well, I can just build a PayPal, man, in like whatever country and currency. It's like, cool, but that's actually only solving maybe 10% of the problem. You mm -hmm. know, there, there is the 90% out there, which is the currency itself and how it's administered and how can you actually access it? Like, do you need an ID? Oh, most people in many countries don't have an ID or the ID is like not proper or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I think like there's a lot of different niche problems within that, uh, which, which I think is important as well. It's funny you mentioned the U.S. like banking system, just because I think I think a lot of people also get caught up in the mindset of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But that's just because most people don't see it as broken because it's it's like their everyday, you know, what they experience and they become yeah. accustomed to it. But that doesn't mean there's any less issue with it or things that can't be solved. So I think that we tend to settle as well for what's familiar rather than going and maybe struggling through learning things or like the you know the technical 
switchovers that would need to be made to switch to new systems that would improve things at scale. And a lot of people don't want to do that because change is hard and takes effort. And that's something that a lot of people aren't comfortable with. So they'd rather settle for what they have now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's a lot of resistance as well to change. Like why? Like what's the incentive for Mm -hmm. JP Morgan to want to fundamentally change the, the payment architecture of the U S banking system? Probably none. Uh, they make money on on T plus two days for settlements as well. Like money has to sit in a bank account to, for that long and they do stuff right. with it while it sits there. So yeah, it's, it's also about incentives as well. So I think the, the, the societies that maybe have less ability to control the financial system, often you find like more innovations there as well. So that's why I think a lot of places that where there's no other option, like in Nigeria, if you're going to get your laptop fixed, People are just like, yep, cool. Here's a sticker on the window that says we accept Tether. I can accept Tether tomorrow. And then I can go to some dude on the street corner, pay some Tether, and he'll give me some physical cash or vice versa, or just pay people in Tether. Like people people will do that. And uh, that's that's really cool to see. I like that. More spontaneous. And you know, it's just people solving problems. Yeah, solving them because they have to, right? And I think... I I do want to ask more about some of the interesting innovations that you've seen. I mean, we're talking at scale, you know, the need for this and where a lot of emerging countries are using this and where they're optimizing for it. But what are the most interesting things that you've seen around the world that people are, I mean, potentially experimental, but hopefully fundamentally changing the framework for how financial services works in different countries? Yeah, I think, well, stable coins have done a lot uh, to improve a lot of things, I think, for for money transfers in general. So, yeah, if we're talking money transfers, I think stablecoins do a lot there. Probably like stablecoins for other currencies as well. That's that's super interesting. When we think of stablecoins, we think of like Tether and USD, basically all US dollar ones. But what about I don't know, like Japanese yen or uh, Indonesian rupiah? Uh, Turkey has Turkish lira as a stablecoin as well, and uh, that's pretty easy to use. Like you can use that anywhere for any amount at any size, and you can't do that in the local banking system. So I think stable coins in general are a pretty cool innovation. Um, yeah, just, you, you never know where things will, will end up. Like I, there's just a lot of just random businesses around the world that start accepting crypto and, and, uh, and, and different payments. Like in the Philippines, there was uh, villages that were, there was a company that we worked with who did solar power on the roofs. And this is like an Island that you have to take like two boats like six, seven hours to get to mm-hmm. uh, population of the town, like 500 people or something. Um, but but they were paying, like using a, a crypto stable coin, they were paying for the solar on their roof through this company's app uh, to do that. So yeah, it's just kind of just random everyday things like that um, that uh, that, are, that are really cool to see. And, and I, I always love seeing the local OTC shops Whenever I go around the world, I try and like find like where's the local OTC shop. So where's the shop I can go to and like give some crypto and they'll give me local cash because then I'm good. I don't need to visit an ATM. I don't need to visit a bank. Most banks and ATMs don't accept me anyway, by the way, because like I don't have a permanent address. So I don't have a proof of address. I can't prove anything. Um, I'm a nomad and I don't I'm not, you know, a resident of any jurisdiction. So I can't like apply for a card online or get, get any of that. So yeah, the, the option, I think I have, I have like 12 bank accounts in different countries that I've set up over the years, only like three of them work. And like all of them have $0 in them pretty much. Um, I keep them at absolute minimums to, to pay for stuff. Uh, but yeah, like uh, flights and accommodation uh, I pay for in, in crypto. Um, that's a, that's a good one. And yeah, just other sort of random life things that comes up. I'll make every opportunity to try and do that. Uh, but yeah, really depends on, on country. Remember one time actually I, I lost my card in Malaysia. The ATM ate it, and I was literally stuck. It was my only card. And what am I going to do? Like argue with the local bank manager? I did that for a bit, but then they're like, "I don't care. You're just some foreigner tourist. Like you don't even have a card that's from our bank <laughs> that, that you lost in the ATM." So I called up a friend of mine, and like 30 minutes later, he delivered cash to my hotel room because like uh, I knew it was like a crypto trader. So uh, yeah, just like cool stuff like that is uh, is a good example. No, definitely. And I feel like we could talk about that all day with the interesting things that are being built globally. Um, And we definitely should sometime, but I do want to get into step as well. And, you know, the idea around why that was a need in the first place, what it is for the people who aren't familiar. And the one thing that I found really interesting and because obviously this podcast, I want to bring awareness and I call it kind of like the onboarding from traditional finance into crypto um, through education, but 
one thing that I saw when looking up step is that you have the goal of onboarding the next billion people into crypto. And I want to know, first of all, why you think what step has built out is necessary in that process and how you're going to do that. Yeah, well, I think that's also Solana's goal in general. Um, I think Anatoly has, has said that many times. So mm-hmm. we're all in the same boat uh, along sort of uh, on that journey. I think for, for us at Step, I mentioned before, we need to have private money for the world. But I think one cool thing other than a store of value is you need to have a, a decentralized financial system in many cases, like getting a loan, things like that can be much easier in DeFi. And how you like where are you going to build this DeFi thing and how are you going to build it? How are you going to keep track of your money? And, uh, you know, there's all of these different apps everywhere that you've got to keep track of. Solana has the last hackathon, the global one, had like 500 entries or something. So there's like all of these teams everywhere doing stuff. So where are you going to keep track of this? And that's that was the original core sort of principle for Step. You know, Step was this one page that you could go to that integrated everywhere. So you didn't have to have 50 tabs open at the same time. You just have one page and it showed you where your money's at. So we, we called that the, the dashboard product. So, you know, we're showing you and integrating with all of these different protocols that are doing all this yield farms and NFTs and staking and whatever it might be, DEXs and, and all this sort of different stuff. So STEP was initially built out to solve that problem. And, and we started in, in 2021 uh, through one of those Solana hackathons. And I think now we're, we're moving into more of a, a data sort of side of things. So uh, we're just about to launch our uh, public version of our data analytics platform. That That's kind of a lot of the moat that we built up over the last year or two has been all of these custom bespoke integrations that we have with everyone. We have a lot of this data. And and I think the, the cool way to showcase that is a subscription service that can show you what's going on in all of these different protocols. So a lot of people have analytics. There's lots of places you can go and see like what's happening on the blockchain, but it's not very specific per protocol. Like I can tell you how many transfers uh, TPS Solana is doing right now, but uh, but it's very hard to tell you like, oh, that particular like yield farming protocol, what was the APY like two and a half months ago? Like no one can tell you that, right? So I think that's what we're going for at step is more of the sort of protocol level uh, analytics. So again, that's that's sort of another product, but yeah, like I think these are the important sort of problems to to be solving for is just having a a one place and we have the tagline be the front page of Solana. So as Solana scales to meet the next billion users, uh, we want to be that place which is you know an inviting and and friendly place that people can come to and learn what the hell's going on and keep track of all the different things going on and be able to just find on-chain data in a easy and digestible way. I think that's that can be our contribution to, to onboarding the next billion people. It's a huge contribution though, right? Because at, so many builders have flocked to crypto, so many projects being built, assets moving from place to place like no one can believe. And there's so much data available in the crypto space. I always talk about this, that we never really had available to us before. So first of all, a lot of the new people kind of approaching the space, it's so much information, you almost don't know what to do with it. And not only is it so much information, it's also how do you aggregate that information? And it's a very clunky process. So I think that what the the work that you're doing at Step is super important for making it less overwhelming for people and making the process a lot more seamless, which at the end of the day is going to onboard tons of people because if the process is difficult a lot of people will give up on it unless they're incentivized to kind of keep pushing forward and learn more yeah it's got to be something that's actually useful to people as well like like you Mm -hmm. said there's a lot of data and there's a lot of data everywhere everyone's wants to to showcase some sort of data or chart or plot a, a point somewhere but the point is like is it actually useful information so that's another challenge where like you know, there, there's some people that go about it, like say Dune or something where they go, hey, we give you the tools to go and build your own data and find out what you want from the blockchain. But most people don't know what they want. So uh, it's kind of up to us uh, for, for many cases to curate a lot of that. And, you know, the example I gave before of a Yield Farms APY, that could be one thing. Uh, it could be how much money is in this particular contract or this particular wallet. What's that wallet doing or what has it done in the past? So I think these kind of things, like uh, these are all good use cases that whatever the cool, like new thing is in crypto, the protocol that's doing some amazing new thing that everyone likes, like at least we'll be able to tell a story about it and, and look at what's really happening on the blockchain. And yeah, so I guess in that perspective, we're kind of a bit neutral in that whatever the new thing is, like with NFTs, when they came along, it's good that we didn't, you know, 
hitch our ride to just DeFi. And uh, we we were able to to adapt and hey, it's if it's on the chain, just like an NFT, it's just like DeFi. So we're still mm-hmm. able to share that kind of information. So yeah, got to be flexible and, and neutral, I think. Definitely, especially with how fast the space is growing. Like there are new pockets of crypto and DeFi and NFTs and innovations even within those sort of pockets of the space that are changing every single day. So if you can't pivot to accommodate that, you, you if you're going to be the front page of Solana, right? You have to adapt to the things that people are interested in and people are building on because that very clearly, even in the last year, has not stayed the same throughout. Like things just move so quickly. Totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I am curious too, just because so many of the people listening to this or hopefully the people listening to this are the ones that are just getting started in crypto. And I do think that to your point of what you're building with Step, a lot of people don't know what data they should be looking at. And they don't even know what they should be looking at in general, right? You see what's in the headlines. Um, you see what's like catching everyone's eye. And often that might not be where the utility is or the best place to start. When it comes to, you know, from a data analytics standpoint, what should people be looking into as they approach the space at a broad view? I know that's kind of a big question, but, you know, that's the problem that you guys are trying to solve with stuff is kind of condensing that down to hopefully what's most important and in a way that's easy for people to onboard with. Yeah, it kind of depends what kind of user you are, right? So usually people that are brand new to crypto, maybe the NFT people, let's say, right? Like they they don't have any DeFi, anything else going on. So we need to be able to show them their NFT portfolio and floor prices and be able to get that from accurate venues where the actual liquidity is. So that would be like one use case for that. You might have someone like a fund manager or something like that, right? Now, what are they going to be caring about? They might be caring about more complex financial derivatives and and what's the yield on X or Y or, you know, what are my current positions in this per protocol over here or like this this options vault, whatever it might be. Um, I'm giving you more of more sort of financial uh, information for that. So, it yeah, it kind of depends on, on who it might be, right? And uh, I think we just have to kind of be friends with everyone and, and integrate with everyone. Uh, we also have like some companies come to us, say like accounting companies that uh, they just want our API for transaction history. So the thing is like, you can look at a wallet on a block explorer and you can see a whole bunch of these addresses, but it doesn't tell you what those individual addresses are actually doing. Like you'll see a transaction for like 0.001 sol, and you go, what on earth was that? When actually it was you removing a, a staking value of $50,000 and moving mm-hmm. it somewhere else. It's just that it was all within the same protocol. So uh, it, it didn't like flag a withdrawal of 50,000. So anyway, stuff like that is it's hard to really label things. So, you know, providing an API to people that want to do that, um, you know, like a accounting company or a tax company, whatever it is, um, something like that would be another good use case. So, yeah, it really depends on on who you are. And uh, I we, we try and, and cater to as much as we can. But yeah, really, our core competency is just like show the data and show people what they have and soon show people what they had in the past. The the transaction history is such an interesting one too. I was on a Twitter spaces recently with a crypto accountant and there aren't many crypto accountants. So was asking him with tax season in the U S is coming up. I mean, it's a couple months away, but you know how these things creep up. It's, it's really hard for people right now, generally speaking to keep track of what they have, where they moved it, when they moved it, the price, when they moved it, and all of the details that you have to account for um, to remain compliant, right? And that's different from country to country, but trying to make that more easily accessible and more clear on what you did when, because a lot of people are transacting so often is is another really, really important thing that I it stresses me out to think about right now. But I also like to think about a future where that's a very clean process. And we're just in the messy middle right now where people are building out the solutions to make it better. Yeah, the problem is passing that information. So it's it's like all of these different transactions, you have to know what protocol they were specifically transacting with. And you also have to have like the internal bindings for, so like the internal um, you know APIs or SDKs or whatever, it's for all of these different protocols to be actually able to decode what on earth is going on. So it's as a as a technical problem to solve, it kind of it's just a lot of third party work with a lot of people, and and that's kind of where standardization comes in. Like having one way to interface with smart contracts would be great, but 
we don't live in the ideal world utopia and everyone has a million different ways to, to do different things. So I guess our job is like wherever it might be, like if we can just make sane a lot of these kind of different interactions and the trans transaction history, we've had transaction history on step for like a year and a half. Um, it's getting a V2 update like in the next few weeks, which will be super cool. Um, but yeah, like stuff like that is is super relevant to uh, to a lot of people. It's just at the moment, we need to keep adding all of these different protocols because if we're not tracking it, then you know it might not show up in the transaction history. And, and someone's got to do that at the end of the day. So the question is who's going to do it? So someone's got to do it who has access to the data and has access to all of these different integrations of this, you know, on the whole chain. Um, so yeah, I think we're in a good position to be able to do that at least. For sure. And, and you've mentioned some of the things that are on the roadmap for step, but I want to talk a little bit more broadly. I know you guys are hosting a hackathon, uh, coming up, hopefully that I will be there uh, in Istanbul. So, um, working with the developer community as well, trying to bring that together, hopefully, you know, get people working on some new ideas there. Can you talk a little bit about that and then, you know, sort of separate things, but a little bit more broadly, you know, with all the problems that need to be solved today, what do you see for the future of the space? I know everyone always asks that to people. What do you see, you know, being the next big thing? Where do you see the utility? But, um, you know, from your vantage point globally, what do you think are the most important things to solve next? And I th hopefully people at the hackathons uh, and at these conferences come together and, you know, brainstorm and meet people and start building these solutions hopefully soon. Yeah, well, so one of the cool things that Solana's done really well and, and nobody else has done has been all these hackathons. Solana has these hacker houses all over the world. There's, I don't know how many they've got now, probably like 10 or 12 or something on the website, I dare say, um, and all different locations and cities around the world where usually they get an attendance of at least usually like a couple thousand people. Um, mm -hmm. The one in Lisbon, I think, had like 3,000 attendees or something wow. like that recently at the conference. And it looks like we're on track to have a, a really big number as well in, in Turkey pretty soon. So, yeah, look, I, I think that the cool thing is that, number one, that exists. Number two, people are building a lot of really cool stuff. And I don't know what they're building, but it, it, all of these different hackathons, as I said, there's like 500 entries of different products that usually come from them. And these are usually one-month things, and they culminate maybe in like a week of, uh, of in-person stuff. But... There's a lot of different products which which people make, and it, it maybe it's also different depending on on different markets and solving different problems. I like the whole payment thing. You know, I think you got to start with well, we need sound money for the world, and then once we have that, we can build a financial system on top. So that kind of means that you need like a core thing, maybe it's stable coins or Sol or Bitcoin or whatever it is, and then you build smart contracts, and maybe that's Dexes, and maybe with the FTX examples, I think is another good one, right? Like millions of people used FTX. Why? Like, why did they use FTX and not a DEX with their wallet? Like, they should probably be using a DEX with their wallet now. And maybe they've sort of learned that, well, maybe I should have custody of my own money rather than trusting it to, to some sort of exchange. So I think maybe just better better stuff like that, right? So there's a lot of infrastructure things um, that, that I'm curious to see. But really, it's it's exposing people to all the different opportunities. But also another thing is is content. A lot of what we're talking about now are things which are easily searchable within the English language world. Whereas like how much content on smart contracts is there in Vietnamese or in Thai or in Turkish? Probably a lot less than there is in English. So I think actually the markets where you see the most individual people like actually transacting and using crypto often have the worst amount of like actual content and information available just by virtue of there's there's less kind of web three styled startups in those places. They do different things. In, in the case of here in Turkey, like, yes, there's a lot of crypto users. A lot of them are using exchanges though. Um, but a big thing here is a thing called fan tokens, which is, isn't really a thing elsewhere in the world. A lot of different countries have them though. They're kind of like NFTs, but for like, you know, a football club might make a fan token. It's kind of like maybe a reward point or, uh, like a access to a special offer or something like that, right? And it really, it's pretty much an NFT, but it's an NFT with some sort of utility and some sort of brand behind it. So that's huge in places like this. Like you see billboards with them everywhere. Um, so it's just stuff like that, right? Where, hey, I, I don't know if if that's a cool thing which the world needs, but at least someone's building it. And hey, if people are building it and people want to use it, great. So you just need more instances of these different hackathons and, and whatever it might be uh, to to really sort of allow that to to flourish and just inform people 
um, and also translate a lot of that content and a lot of the English language discussions, I think, that go on. So U.S. and English speaking centric and so many of these different things. Right. And I think what's interesting about all of the Solana hackathons for like the dev meetups that they do they're really trying to bring them to different geographies than you'd normally think of. I mean, their lineup for this year, I'm trying to think, obviously Turkey was on there for one. Um, but I just remember looking at the list and some of the places that they had there, you wouldn't think of, right? But there's bound to be builders there and they should be supported as well. And they need a place. I think there's a lot to be said for being in person around other people trying to build interesting things or trying to solve for things. And you can't really replicate that online as much as people like to think. The energy is incredible at these events. And I think um, the point on content too, which is really, really interesting. So many of the places where they have a lot of the use cases, they probably don't have the same content, like you said. And do you think that that drives people more to learning by doing? I was talking to someone this morning in Bali and they had been saying that you know, they have so many friends that, you know, there aren't a lot of resources on crypto specifically in the languages that they speak, but they throw $10, $20 in and transaction volumes on or transaction fees on certain, you know, like blockchains like Solana are so low that it gives you the ability to kind of learn as you're trying things rather than say a few years ago when it was a lot more costly to do that. Yeah. Well, I I mentioned Indonesia a little bit earlier, I think. Uh, I used to be friends with um, I haven't spoken to him to uh, many years. I guess we're still friends, but um, I, I remember they they were based in Bali, a lot of their team, and, and they had like 5 million users uh, of their exchange. And they, there was a thing, it probably still exists, it's like Bitcoin Bali, and there's like villas that you can pay for in Bali, or there was like a surf shop, there's like a whole bunch of different shops on a map that you can go and, and buy stuff with. So yeah, it's like all of these just random use cases and and collections of people doing stuff. I, I think it's super cool. And a lot of it's just totally organic as well. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see that. Like, that's what I want to see. I, Solana had a good um, hackathon in India as well recently. I was at the Singapore Hacker House as well. we got the uh, Turkey one coming up. There's There's been ones all over Europe as well. I think there was a Stockholm one recently. Um, and yeah, a bunch of others like US. And I think there was... I don't know if there was one in Colombia or there probably was going to be one in Bogota or something soon, something like that. There seems to be a bunch of crypto things there. So yeah, just a lot of random places around the world. And it seems to just sort of coalesce with, with crypto people and great. Like also local governments and, and that sort of thing, like the, the reaction is generally really positive for these kind of things, right? Because especially in, in the case of Turkey, like they want their engineers earning a lot more money and you can do that in Web3. Like that's really the the industry where you can earn more than a Facebook engineer or a Google or anything like that. So if you're good at engineering and you're based in a country where your cost base is like 500 bucks a month and that's it, that's all you need to live, then you know if you're earning a you know more than a Google salary or something in in the Web three world, great. Like that's a lot more money and an investment into the country. So uh, so yeah. So I think you know there's a lot of interest as well from a lot of different uh, you know jurisdictions around the world. So th- that brings up a really good point that I would have forgot to ask too, because I so often bring up regulation when I talk to different guests, uh, but a lot of them US-based, right? So from your perspective, you're seeing a lot more positivity around welcoming builders, welcoming innovations, and welcoming crypto, which I think is really important to talk about as well. So what what does that look like around the world in like a little bit more detail versus what we see in the US because I that's that's a lot of the focus for probably most of the people listening to this is the constant talk around regulation and cracking down on defi and cracking down on the, the entire process what are you seeing elsewhere yeah the constant boring talk and and <laughs> useless talk is what i would call it like yeah. <laughs> regulation is an interesting thing because well it's actually it's, it's the opposite of an interesting thing but it, this part is interesting where it doesn't have an answer so like I can tell you that one plus one is two and we can prove it. And I can sit on a boat in the ocean and tell you that and you can prove it. You can be in the deserts of wherever it is, the Gobi Desert. And you can also prove that one plus one is two. But mm-hmm. regulation is something which doesn't have an answer. It doesn't have a, a convenient like solution. It has a bunch of opinions. That's what it has. And the thing with opinions is they're limitless. Everyone has mm-hmm. an opinion. So the thing with regulation is, is especially in, in many sort of jurisdictions that probably don't quite know how to deal with it, um, is it's just a bunch of opinions. It's, you know, some regulator guy had a dinner somewhere and then it's interpreted by a lawyer, but it's not really law. 
And then there's a guidance note issued, but that's not a law, it's a guidance note. So we recommend that you do this, but there's not really anything prescriptive saying that you should. So it's just like a whole bunch of opinions at the end of the day. Um, and that's like the case of the US. I mean, it, it, there's like 50, you can start with the 50 state regulators, right? MSB licenses everywhere, massive mm -hmm. barrier to entry. Then you've got all the other three letter people, FinCEN and CFTC and SEC, everyone has an opinion. Many countries around the world have one regulator. So literally one person to have an opinion. Uh, and in, in that's not, firstly, that's a lot easier. Secondly, I think there's also the case of uh, just let it run. And, and if you make money off it, great. And that's probably good for the country in the long run. Um, I think really at the, in the long-term scale of things, like crypto is incompatible with a nation state fundamentally. Like if you have private money for the world and all of your economy transact in something like a Bitcoin or a Sol or something like that, and they're not using your local fiat currency, then governments and regulators are not going to like that, right? So fundamentally, there is a friction and, and that's going to come to a head at some point. The point is, like, how do you get there and how do you deal with that situation? Mm -hmm. And uh, like, I think you've seen some of the Central American countries as well, where they've just gone, hey, we're just going to make Bitcoin the legal tender and deal with it. Uh, and there's like some random islands as well that, that have been doing different things around the world. So I think once a few of those dominoes start falling and you, know, you see the same thing, say, in, in Turkey or Venezuela or Argentina, where the local currency is just so bad that the entire economy is pretty much using crypto and, and that sort of stuff anyway. So you kind of reach a point where it's like, well, the local fiat currency, even if you try and crack down on it and like, you know, stamp your gavel hammer a little bit, like it's not going to solve the problem. So you might as well just let it run and embrace it and and try and like, you know, be positive about it and, and attract people to your country and attract investment. So, yeah, I, I see that that's probably going to be a quandary, which a lot of sort of nation states will will sort of go for. You already see a lot of different islands trying to be a crypto hub. Everyone wants to be a crypto hub. I think the latest crypto hub is Dubai. Everyone wants to go to Dubai to be a crypto hub. Um, and Dubai is interesting because it has like 24 different free trade zones and they're actually like offshore jurisdictions with insider jurisdiction. So uh, you can just choose. You can go, hey, I'll just go to this free zone by the airport and then I'll live under their laws at the airport. <laughs> so yeah, it's stuff like that, right? But um, I think it really depends. Uh, and yeah, a lot, of, a lot of places all around the world are very permissive. Like, you know, all of these millions of users that are using crypto in Turkey or Nigeria or Indonesia or Vietnam, like, it's not like those central banks are denying people and locking them in jail and chasing them like the SEC for hundreds of millions of dollars. Literally, the, the worst that usually happens is that certainly in the case of Indonesia and Vietnam, they say, hey, uh, you can't sell goods directly in uh, crypto. So I can't have a shoe and then sell it for 0.18 Bitcoin. But I can have a shoe. I can sell it for 10,000 rupiah. And then you can pay me that in Bitcoin and then you can convert the Bitcoin to rupiah. So you can do that. So literally I can still have a sign at the front of my shop that says I accept Bitcoin and that I can pay in Bitcoin. It's just that I have to convert it to rupiah. So that's pretty much what was their statement like eight years ago and it hasn't changed uh, for both Vietnam and Indonesia. So it's just things like that, that, I mean, they're pretty chill about it. And, you know, a lot of companies have, have emerged and, and they're worth tens of millions of dollars, uh, you know, in a place that otherwise that wouldn't have happened. So I think, yeah, the thing with regulation is it's very jurisdictional based. It's very opinions based. Um, I wish people would look more at the use cases. And uh, yeah, fundamentally, I think that, I don't know, like some of these problems that uh, some of these regulators try and solve, like they're kind of intractable, intractable problems because there's just so many regulators, they all have an opinion. So how are you going to solve that? Like you kind of do need some sort of interventional merger, I think, of a lot of these different regulators. But having said that, the UK has one regulator, the FCA, and, and they're also kind of useless. So, yeah, who knows? <laughs> it's like you, you, can't, you can't win with that. You really can't. And, and intervention for regulators, that does seem like something that's well overdue, crypto or otherwise. <laughs> um, yeah. I, like, I do, do, do we need like 10 agencies trying to do the same thing? Just exactly. put them under one roof and call them something else. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I, I have a friend that always makes jokes about the merger of like the CFTC and SEC in the US with having multiple regulators. So maybe this is the time, right? One is too many sometimes, I'd argue. Um, I, I do think we could probably talk about this all day, but I do want to be conscious of your time. I know we're getting close to the end here. I, I always ask the same 
questions. And I have a feeling I kind of know what you're going to say. Um, looking at crypto, big picture, I mean, definitely all of the things that you've highlighted, it is already spread globally. Lots of use cases, millions of people using this for a lot of different things. For crypt- What would it take from where crypto is now um, and some of the things that you've talked about already to reach what, you know, mass adoption, full potential of the real important use cases versus where it is now. And if we never see it get to that point of where it has the potential to go, what would the reason for that be? So sort of like bear case, bull case. Yeah, I think so. The the bullish case is kind of what Solana is already doing now, which is just having a ton of these in-person developer-focused events that are focused on getting a whole bunch of people to go and build stuff because you need the people to build the stuff first. And then let's say, you know, a hundred of these different things are launched, maybe 10 of them survive, but all 10 of them acquire customers somehow. And maybe 50% of those customers are brand new. And then once those customers are in that Web3 ecosystem, maybe that proliferates around all of the other different apps. And, you know, that user discovers 10 other different apps. So it's, it's a net positive thing. So the more of these different, uh, you know, uh, dev-focused things and and translating the material into local languages, getting people building a whole bunch of different stuff. I think that's absolutely the, the best course of action. Also, it's it's kind of a light lift as well because you're not stamping on any toes of regulators. You're not trying to convince a government to get you to do something because they're not and they're slow and useless. So you can just go there and just be like, hey, here's the documentation. Go and build a, a cool, like, decentralized thing and, you know, some DeFi app or something like that. So I think that's the way that we get to a billion users onboarding. Um, I think what could happen if that wasn't the case or if they didn't materialize, I think ultimately... Crypto is fundamentally just a better way to transact on the internet. You know, it's there's no, uh, you know, credit card numbers and it can doesn't expire. I give you a wallet address. It's one thing I can trace it. How many wire transfers have I lost throughout the time of banks just going? Oh, I don't know, like what the fees are or when it's going to arrive. It's like, could you just show me like the transaction ID on a blockchain? <laughs> that would be great. So I think fundamentally we are always going to march towards an inevitable progress of at least nation state fiat systems being on some form of blockchain or new infrastructure. I think what could maybe derail a lot of things would be that, well, I don't know. I don't know if there's a way to derail a lot of that. Like, yes, there's impediments they can put in in front of the way, but I mean, it's kind of like trying to sweep the sand off a beach, like, you're never going to stop it. So it really depends on where you are. Like some countries will limit it. Some countries will lock it down and, you know, and say that you have to use this app and you have to use the the national CBDC, but there's 190 countries out there as well. So, you know, you've got a lot of choice. So I think that, yes, the, the bearish case is that some places will geographically uh, make it a lot more difficult, but the bullish case is, the world's bigger than a couple of patches of dirt around the world. So that's all good. What a perfect way to end it. Could definitely agree. Uh, well, George, this was great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate you coming on. And thank you to everyone for listening as well. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency.